How will Lakota language sound seven generations in the future? The answer to that question begins now. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Thursday, July 27th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we get to know a cohort experiencing holistic language learning and we'll ask how they bring that work into the workplace and into community. We'll learn more about a USD program seeking to support the next generation of teachers in the state. We'll hear from a rodeo athlete from Wall who just brought home the big prize in barrel racing. Plus, Kevin Wooster inhales the aroma of the modern small city. He takes a trip to the landfill and its nearby recycling center to explore the challenges of recycling in the Black Hills. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Wheat is one of the most important plants out there. It's found in mills, bakeries, grocery stores, and restaurants around the world. You've likely eaten wheat already today. The science of wheat breeding has changed dramatically over the centuries. One of the country's eminent winter wheat breeders is a professor at South Dakota State University in Brookings. Sunish Segal is an associate professor and award-winning winter wheat breeder at SDSU, and he's with me from the Janine Basinger studio on the campus there. Dr. Segal, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on the show. Tell me a little bit about what wheat breeders in the 19th century and the 20th century had in their toolboxes because this is a an old science that's making huge advancements but take us back in history first please okay in uh, in the beginning uh, the breeders had less of genetic knowledge uh, the genetics behind the plant breeding but they were able to make selections with time with the discovery of mendel's laws people started understanding the genetics behind and be able to use uh, that genetics and uh, be able to design their breeding programs accordingly. And with uh, advent of sequencing technologies, now we can use both uh, genomics as well as high-throughput phenomic technologies uh, to make selections uh, and advance the breeding program in a, in a faster and a more efficient way uh, in the present day. So help us understand the difference between genetically modified organisms and gene editing or genetic engineering. Help us kind of really understand how these things are not quite the same. So, so uh, actually genetically modified organisms is, is a kind of like a misnomer. Anything, any cross that you make is you are modifying the, the genetics there. So it is, it is a modified organism. But what GMO is actually truly speaking is is when you are inserting a, a, a gene from a different organism into uh, another organism that's actually called as as a GMO mm-hmm. uh, so GMO means that when you're inserting a, a gene from a, another species into an, another species whereas in case of uh, gene editing you are not actually inserting a new gene from another species what you're trying to do is actually modify the sequence, the DNA level sequence of the gene that's already present in that organism, if that gene is negatively regulating something, you want to shut it off. And Mm -hmm. then that's how the improvement is made uh, through gene editing. All right, Uh, so let's- Whereas in future, actually you could put new genes through this technology too. But for now, mostly gene editing is knocking out uh, the bad genes. 
All right. So let's talk about the next uh, revolution in agriculture. How does your work seek to solve some of the big problems of population growth and climate change and drought and heat like we're seeing this week in South Dakota when it comes to the wheat plant? So uh, the South Dakota Winter Wheat Breeding Program has a a major goal of developing high-yielding wheat varieties that can and address the challenges of both biotic stress and abiotic stresses like heat and drought, and also add value uh, to the industry by producing wheat varieties that make the quality uh, so that there's demand for South Dakota wheat. So the program actually uh, has uh, develops or starts with making about six to 700 new crosses every year. It takes about 10 to 12 years to release a variety from the day the cross is made. But actually, the effort starts two years before the cross is made to find or identify the parents that will be able to deal with those challenges that are, are we, are, we foresee in the future. So we know that heat and drought are important, so we choose the material that's going to perform under that locations, and we then start making the cross with the already available elite varieties uh, that are already growing in South Dakota that are adapted to this, and then integrate those uh, genes that can help uh, alleviate these challenges. So then starts, starting with a cross, it goes into a populations where we have hand selection and uh, is done over a few, few generations, then leading to a, a seed increase, and then it goes into uh, yield testing where it's tested about six years before it's released to huh. the public. All right. So one of now, the reasons how, what you we are doing. Yeah. One of the reasons you won this award yes. was because of protein content and just the quality from the people who are the end users. Tell me a little bit about why protein and simply being good wheat matters. Okay, it's protein is uh, wheat constitutes actually twenty percent of the protein of our our daily diet. We don't remember that. Uh, so protein is an important component of, of wheat quality, and but the functional protein is the one that makes a bread uh, what the bread is. So we in the breeding program are not only looking at varieties which can produce high protein along with high yield and produce a functional protein. So early in the program, we are using uh, techniques where we can use small sample of one gram uh, of wheat flour and do a retention test to know how good that functional protein is in there. Huh. So that's how we, we select early in the generation and we are able to cull down those lines which are really, really poor in the quality. And then in later generations, we do extensive test testing on, on milling quality and on the uh, um, uh, mixing and baking properties of the wheat flowers on hundreds of varieties to be able to develop a variety that's good for uh, industrial uh, baking. Well, congratulations on the honor from the Wheat Council two years in a row. Um, Dr. Sunish Segal, Associate Professor, award-winning winter wheat breeder at SDSU in Brookings. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A new program will hopefully help teachers get degrees in their hands while also helping schools get more teachers in their classrooms. The University of South Dakota School of Education is one of the universities in the state to receive funding from Start Today SD and the U.S. Department of Labor and Regulation. The funding will jumpstart a teacher fellows registered apprenticeship program 
Jackie Wilbur is the director of the Center for Student and Professional Services at USD School of Education. She's with me from STPB's Vermilion Studios on the campus of USD. Jackie Wilbur, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Laurie. Um, we've, of course, talked recently about the problems with teacher pay in South Dakota, but it's about more than money. What are some of the obstacles or challenges with the teacher shortage? What do you see going on? And then we'll talk about how this program is set to help. It's certainly a complicated issue that's not only occurring in South Dakota, but also nationwide. And I think one of the things that we're hoping to address um, with this program is funding for for going through teacher preparation. Um, most programs have at least a semester. Ours has a year-long robust um, student teaching or what we call teacher residency opportunity, and those are largely unfunded. Um, so funding is certainly part of the conversation. And then I also think that there's a national attitude and, and perhaps even a local attitude that we can work on in terms of improving um, the way we talk and think about teachers. And that's something we really strive to do in the School of Education at USD. All right, so let's back up and talk about what exactly the program is and will it do? How is it going to roll out? So we just received funding for the initial startup. Well, the School of Education will be receiving $15,000 for this initial year of getting the program rolled out. Um, but we're really excited about the robust funding opportunities that it provides, um, one of which is the $6,500 in tuition reimbursement that would be available for students who participate in the program. And then there's also funding um, for them in terms of what the Department of Labor calls apprenticeships, um, um, but basically would be the variety of jobs that are open in the school districts right now as paraeducators, educational assistants, teachers' aides. So while students are going to school at the University of South Dakota preparing to become a teacher, they are also working then in a K-12 school district, getting that hands-on experience um, with a mentor. So there's also funding that goes into the K-12 side. They would receive some funding from the Department of Labor as well for taking on our students in these apprenticeships. I remember when my daughter was little, she's all graduated from college now, but early mm -hmm. on in elementary school, what do you want to be when you grow up? And at one point she said, a teacher. And one of the other teachers said, you're going to groan when I say this, but you can do better than that. Mm. And uh, my heart just sank <laughs> because <laughs> I, and this is one of those offhand comments. You know, there was a million other times during that school year where that teacher held up other educators. So, you know, I don't want to put too much weight on it, but I want to go back to what you said about how we talk about teachers. Um, there, what are you hearing that people kind of have misunderstandings about the teaching and the education profession? Oh, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings. You know, everyone goes to school, so there's this perception from inside the classroom chair that I think is quite different from being at the front of the classroom leading the way. And I'm not trying to move past the challenges that currently exist in education. There certainly are many, and um, I, I don't mean to dismiss those, but I do really mean to encourage people to go into the profession because I think if you want to change the world, um, doing it from the front of the classroom and in the lives of young people is one of the very best places to do it. I'm a former uh, high school and middle school teacher myself and I moved into this role at the University of South Dakota because I wanted to inspire people to go into the profession. I think um, we are at kind of a point where we have an opportunity to speak a new way and to maybe move a new way in the field of education. And I, I see the folks coming into our program really um, with that, 
that inspirational mindset themselves. So I'm excited to see what folks going into the profession are able to do in the coming years. Um, There's a real opportunity there. Are there direct um, efforts to bring teachers to classrooms in rural South Dakota? Absolutely. That's part of the registered apprenticeship program as well. And and that stems from our ongoing efforts um, at the University of South Dakota to to inspire teachers across the state. Um, But yes, the the registered apprenticeship program, while initially in our first year, will be partnered with um, the Sioux Falls School District. We're planning to expand to districts across the state, especially rural districts. Tell me more about the unpaid teacher residency, um, which we commonly call student teaching. How does this address some of the needs there? Do these student teachers just not get paid? Is that... Yes, so similar to, it's because student teaching or teacher residency is a course that students take, Uh. um, so similar to any other course that you would take, one usually pays for the course and doesn't receive funding for the course. But the course is essentially a year-long, a really great opportunity actually to be able to learn what it's like to be a teacher and so um, because the course is in the classroom you know in other other professions if you go into medical residency for instance that that is a paid opportunity so we're working with a national organization called prepared to teach who's part of a, a larger conversation and movement to kind of change the opinion on teacher residency or student teaching um, and to get those things funded. So our application for the registered apprenticeship program was part of that that larger conversation of, of trying to provide funding for folks when they're in that teacher residency. And this would do that um, by making teacher residency potentially a job for that year that they're in it um, that they could receive compensation for. All right, first cohort in the fall. How do uh, people connect with this program? Yes, please reach out to us at usd.edu slash edu. Jackie Wilbur, Director of the Center for Student and Professional Services at USD School of Education. Thank you so much for being here. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I am your host, Lori Walsh. Well, breathing life into the Lakota language, or Lakoya Waonia, is a new program teaching Lakota language and life ways. And in our Rapid City studios now, we have some of the learners from the first cohort, as well as their instructor, Henry Quickbear. Henry Quickbear, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you so much for stopping by. Hello. Yeah, th- thanks for having me here. Um, I appreciate it. Um, it's good to be here. And you have with you Natalie Bordeaux. Natalie, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. And uh, Trasina, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Um, hel- would you introduce yourself for us, please? My name is Trasina Porbear. Excellent. Well, Henry, let's start with you because this is a, an exciting program in the sense that not only are you teaching Lakota language, but Lifeways. And it's a paid cohort as well. Tell me about the program, please. Well, Lakota is <coughs> just as it says, um, breathing life back into the Lakota language. And what the the main um, topic on this is that we teach our tribal members. They're getting paid to learn their Lakota language, <coughs> and with that, they're learning their culture and slash spiritual of the Lakota um, life. How long have you been uh, teaching, Henry? Because I was watching some videos of you 
you know, counting to 10 for uh, young learners on Facebook. And tell me a little bit about your background <coughs> with the language. Well, um, I've been teaching for a while now. Um, I, t I taught at every level from Head Start mm -hmm. to <coughs> here at La Coma And <coughs> it's been an experience um, teaching um, here at La Coma You know, we have that really good interaction when you have learners who really want to learn their language. So you have mm -hmm. the interaction back. Whereas when you're teaching um, Head Start kids, you know, they, they get the hang of it and they know mm -hmm. their numbers and yeah. We try to teach, I try to teach them the basics when it comes to Lakota language. Yeah. But here at Lakota, yeah, we're doing conversational phrases for every day. Um, yeah, that's a big, that's a, a <coughs> monumental task to learn. Natalie, tell me about your relationship with your language and what this process is like for you right now. So I went to um, St. Francis Indian School um, back home and um, uh, we had bits and pieces of the language over the years and um, it kind of was just shapes and colors and animals and elementary and then we moved to middle school and there was sort of a push for language but it wasn't that strong and um, I did have some good teachers in high school but I wanted to learn more but I didn't know who to ask and like what exactly to ask about the language, about the culture. And so I graduated without knowing a lot. And so whenever I, w I was going through a gap year or I um, decided to do a gap year after I graduated in um, <clears throat> 2021. And I saw the ad for the um, program on Facebook one day and then I just decided to jump for it because it's like everything that I wanted is like um, an emphasis on like cultural identity and then along alongside the learning the language and that um, that's what really um, attracted me to the program. So Natalie one of the things that strikes me and uh, maybe this isn't true for you uh, but it takes a lot of humility to come and enter a space where you feel like, you know, you haven't had those connections, you don't know what's going on, but yet this is your culture. And so you have to be open-hearted and open-minded, but also reveal just how much you don't know. What has, how have you been welcomed into that space to say, this is a safe space to learn from the beginning, something that uh, you long to know? So um, I knew Henry from St. Francis and um, another one of the Lakolia Waonia members is uh, Haley Quickbear. And I knew her from um, school too. And so it was really comforting to like be in that space with them and like having familiar faces there. And um, also just the people in the program, like whatever they knew, they shared with me. And um, I could just like sit back and like, um, all right, I'm, like all this information I'm able to get and then, um, uh, um, information that I never ever did have um, access to or like the reason why this is this way or the reason why this is that way or why we do this. And um, it's just really nice to have those answers and the people in the program, like they have made it a very comfortable um, um, atmosphere. Yeah. Chancina, tell me a little bit about your language journey. How did you come into this program, and how is it proceeding for you? 
um, <clears throat> growing up, uh, both my parents were uh, fluent, or they were Lakota speakers, and a lot of my family members were. But on our in our generation, they um, they haven't uh, taught the language because of what they've been through through the boarding school system or through school where they they would make them hold their hands out and hit their hands if they spoke the language so they decided that we would learn the language after um, we learned um, English in school mm. but a lot of that didn't happen so um, I have always um, understood a little bit of Lakota here and there and whenever this came up um, I taught Head Start for 18 years and so there I would try to teach as much of the language that I did know and it was just very basic and so I wanted to learn more and when this opportunity opened up I applied for it and I got into the program and it feels like um, it opened a lot of um, things like I can understand when people speak now and it's it's really satisfying to um, understand and to know and to be able to talk with my coworkers in Lakota too. Yeah, let's talk about that, Henry. Conversational Lakota, much different from a vocabulary list. What's the leap from being able to know some words to really being able to have a full conversation with another speaker? Yeah, um, it's conversational phrases like such as "doshke uh, or you know, "he hanilachchi tayawa chiyunke," or you know, <clears throat> stuff that we use every day. The basic things that we've been teaching is a lot more um, helpful now than it was like back in teaching in the high school and grade school Head Start era, where you're just teaching them how to say. Wangji, which is one, you know. So mm -hmm. now you can actually have a interaction back with the adult learners here at Lakota. So it makes teaching um, Lakota, teaching Lakota language fun because they're actually talking back with you in Lakota. Yeah. yeah. What sort of um, it talks about in in your press materials, uh, you know, life ways teaching or traditional teaching. Besides just learning the language, what else have you learned, Natalie? Um, I've learned um, a lot about myself, probably, and a lot mm -hmm. about uh, my people and, like, uh, the things that were lost during, not lost, but, like, um, things that, like, um, happened because of, like, the our history in boarding schools and um just like modern society having an effect on the youth and um how i want to proceed as a lakota um we are in um, today's society and like how i want to encourage other youth to um carry themselves nowadays you know and um just a lot I, just a lot of like it's hard to describe because uh, the people around me like have a lot more life experience than I do, and like I'm kind of like hanging back, and like I am mm -hmm. just now entering adulthood, and so I don't really know what to say a lot of the times. But other than that, like I am learning a lot, and um, yeah. 
I appreciate the, those around me. Chancina, have you found that moment where you are thinking in Lakota, where it's uh, like that 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 moment when it sort of snaps into place, where you're trying to think, how does this sound in the other language? To all of a sudden, in your head, it's there. Have you had that kind of um, breakthrough? Yes, um, <laughs> even to the point where we dream. Really, Lakota <laughs> and and dreaming like. Like um, just last night, I was dreaming. I was um, saying something in Lakota. I was like, "Wait, now I I need a switch. <laughs> you know, I need a I need a uh, think about this in Lakota, and I have to say it in Lakota." So, yeah, I love that, Henry. The difference between dreaming in Lakota and thinking, okay, that's a lot of study. Like it's your brain is processing things in your sleep, but it also sounds like more to me. What does that mean to you when someone is dreaming in the language? Um, it just tells me that they're <coughs> really want to learn yeah. and they're continuing with even after our our class or work day is over, <coughs> they're still continuing it on with them when they leave. So dreaming about it is really good. It's mm-hmm. really great to hear that, you know, because it does happen. You know, you want to learn more, you're eager, you're excited for more. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, and we'll start with you, Henry, and then um, maybe ask the others if they have an example. Um, The workplace, Henry, when you go into the working world, do you go into your family um, situation? You go into a community. What is your hope with having more conversational speakers that you bring to especially, you know, a business and a, a working environment? Well, like um, when you a typical working day, you know, you come in, you greet the learners uh, in Lakota, and you try to stay in the language as much as possible. Mm. And we have a schedule that we go by. So <clears throat> taking that back from there to the home, you know, it's it's pretty much the same thing. But um, you know, nowadays this day and age of uh, there hasn't been that much speakers that you can conversate with. So giving it back to these learners is is something that's really great. So you can hear them speak back to you in the morning every day. That's a um, blessing. Mm-hmm. Natalie, is there um, hope that you have for a demand for conversational fluency? Do you think this will affect your you know marketability in the workplace, for example? Um, I don't know, because um, I don't know how to answer that. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> fine. I think it's really interesting to consider, um, you know, as you spin things forward where, you know, people will start asking for and looking for people who have um, conversational fluency. Chancina, what is yeah. your, is there an obligation that you have? Is there a hope for the future that you have after you do this learning or as you do this learning to teach another um, generation, another set of learners? What What is the future like for you in this program as it relates to that? Uh, first of all, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Nat, me and Natalie had this conversation on the way up here, and one of the things that she said she would um, wanted to do was um, to go back to the school where she came from and to mm-hmm. take the language back there. Um, and for the future, 
um, I would like to hear Lakota again in our homes and in our schools and um, even like in a store or a post office or, you know, just to hear the language again. Mm-hmm. Um, because I really missed that <coughs> when I was young. Um, everywhere I went, we, we heard people speaking Lakota. And when I hear um, people speaking it, I feel at home. And it feels good to hear it. <coughs> and so uh, one of my things is no matter what I decide to do going forward, that um, I want to bring the language back to our people, especially to my own family, to my children, um, and to others, anybody around me that's that wants to learn. or uh, We did some online classes to, to try to help teach people. And um, I would like to hear it in the workplaces and everywhere we go. Yeah, I'd like to hear it on the radio. Henry, will you talk to our listeners now? I'm not going to understand what you're saying, but um, what would you want to say to the listeners of South Dakota Public Broadcasting right now? The mic is yours. How me talk you be, like Henry Quickber Senior, much up alone. Lakova only I ekta once be, Lakota be once be we chakena. Lena oyate ki si chongo mochoche ekta Lakota ki hena washtekte chi Lakota be hanta hena wachanjo unchaki heta kokata ki yhamaniyote washagi yhamaniyo chimpelo. What I said was, you know, <clears throat> I want to thank all the listeners out there for listening to the show today. And I encourage all of them um, uh, back home, the Sichonghu Mokoche, to encourage all of them to learn their language and speak their language. That way we can carry a, our children can carry it strongly in the future. Mm. My guests have been Natalie Bordeaux, Chancina Porbear, and Henry Quickbear. And we've been talking about breathing life into the Lakota language with um, this new cohort. Uh, remarkable stuff. Henry, thank you so much for being here with me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate mm. being here. Natalie, you are fantastic, and you handled every question with verve. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate your thank time. You. Thanks, Nelly. Chancina, welcome and thank you as well. We really appreciate it. Can I, um, oh. A little bit more on the look, look what Lokowonia was. You is. can yeah, go right ahead, Henry. <clears throat> okay, Lokowonia, when it first started, it was the first of its kind for a Lakota, uh, Lakota adult immersion program. And it <clears throat> it pays its tribal members a salary with um leave and health benefits. So okay. um, what Lakowonia did was it took all the way the barriers for um, a tribal member to learn their language and culture and also spiritual stuff. So that's what Lakowonia is and I believe it really works. So I hope that there are other programs that in in, uh, in and around South Dakota or wherever, you know, take, um, take this approach because it really works and it really helps. Well said. We'll put some information up on our website as well so people can follow those links. Uh, that's at listener or um, at sdpb.org slash news. Thank you, everybody. We appreciate it. Let's take a moment now to celebrate a national champion. 
Piper Cordes has just accomplished something pretty special. She claimed the national title in barrel racing at the National High School Rodeo Finals in Gillette, Wyoming. She is the first South Dakotan to win a national title since 2018 and the first to win at Worlds in barrel racing since 1968. She talked with SDPB's Nate Wack about the thrills of the competition and sharing this victory with her horse, Fiesta. It means everything. I mean, this has been a dream of mine since I was in sixth grade. It's a really big accomplishment for me, and I'm just super blessed to have the opportunity to be able to do it. I've been getting a lot of attention and congratulations and stuff, but it's not just me who won the world title. I wouldn't have been able to do it without him, and I think he really deserves it, and he ran so good for me at nationals and he just he ran his heart out and actually I don't think I've told anyone this before or yet but I went to exercise him Thursday morning and he was coughing and he usually does not do that and so we were kind of freaking out after that and we were trying to like nebulize him and get him on antibiotics and we just were kind of freaking out because that's just never happened to us before but then we rode him that night and then the next morning and he didn't cough once and he was feeling good. So, I mean, I was just so thankful that he was okay and he just ran and worked so good for me. Especially after my second run, when I ran that 16-7, that was probably the highlight of my whole trip down in July. I just, that run in that time meant so much to me and I didn't really think about how I was winning the average by a second. I didn't really want to think about that. I didn't want that to really get in my head and mess me up, but definitely after winning the first two rounds, I was like, I just have to go into the short go thinking positive and just make another run like I usually do. But I was also thinking I did not come down here to just win two rounds. I was just like, after the first two rounds, I was like, I, I'm going to be leaving with the national title. It just all worked out really good, and I'm very thankful. South Dakota as a whole finished third as a team at the National Finals Rodeo event. They were behind just Texas and Utah. If you'd like to see Piper Cordes of Wall, South Dakota do her championship run, head to our website, sdpb.org rodeo. Stick around. More in the moment after the break. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Well, Kevin Wooster follows the trail of things we throw away. To do that, he has to breathe the smell of civilization and head to the landfill and a material recovery facility nearby in the Black Hills. You can find Kevin Wooster's work on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster. And on Thursdays, you find him right here on In the Moment. He is seated at our Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. I am seated in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls, and we are all connected and ready to talk. Kevin, welcome back. Hey, Lori, what did you throw away today? <laughs> One wrapper, that's it today. Really? That's I've pretty good. I've been very thrifty today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Actually, you know what? I'm a very um, light garbage um, 
tosser. My can is never full, but my recycling bin is overflowing. And then, of course, brings the question, is the recycling getting recycled or is the recycling getting thrown in the landfill anyway? And you wanted to know the answer in Rapid City, so you went to find out. Tell me a little bit I about did. where you started. Well, we're, I'm motivated by, by, well, first of all, I've got a stepson who just, yeah, that's all going into the ocean anyway. Yeah. Uh, and part of that is just to kind of get me riled up. But <laughs> part of it is, <laughs> you know, that uh, a lot of it does end up where it shouldn't be. And uh, the land landfill is certainly not the worst place for it. Streams and lakes and rivers and landscape and the ocean. We all know the situation with plastics in the ocean, which is yeah. awful and get you know, floating barges of garbage and you know, yeah, all kinds of things. For heaven's sakes, humanity! What are you going to do with us? <laughs> and uh, and and also, just sometimes, uh, Mary, my wife would say, "Well, I just put it in and figured they'll, you know, when in doubt, put it in." And I'm kind of in doubt when take it out. <laughs> and so I spent a lot more time scrutinizing. Is that a one or a seven? Is that a two oh, or a five foot? The number on yeah, your plastics? The number on the okay. plastics. Okay. Because here in Ras Rapid City, we only recycle one and two. And the, the three through seven, we can put in our recycling bin, but it it goes to the landfill because we just don't have a market for it. And nobody wants to come way out here to the star of the west and pick up our our plastics unless they're the you know the easiest to deal with so let's talk about that because people need to understand your story is different than my story is different than somebody's yeah. story in aberdeen because of different geography and different uh, recycling services and systems so tell me you went down to find out and explain the situation with the Black Hills and, and, and how that can be more difficult to recycle something like glass, for example, which yeah, is easy here. You know, you know you, yeah. And it, we send our, our plastics primarily to places in Minnesota and Iowa, you know, right on yeah. your front step and sometimes over in Ohio. And uh, the, the one and two plastics, a pretty good market there. But Glass, really no market that we can get to from Rapid City, again, because glass is heavier. It's more complicated, obviously, broken grass, glass as opposed to, you know, plastic jar or plastic uh, bottles, mm. compacted. A lot easier to deal with and a lot lighter the plastic is. And it's just awfully expensive to ship glass and more complicated to handle. So you we just don't have a place for it, a place to send it. So glass, I felt, you know, I've always felt so good when I take my NA beer bottle and drop it in that blue <laughs> bin and thinking, well, much better. And I, as I say in the blog, I much prefer to drink my beverage out of a bottle than mm -hmm. a can. And uh, in some of them, my favorites, I can't get in a can. So um, that really crushed me, that trip through the landfill that... Uh, <laughs> You know, and that's pun do, intended if you want. Do you remember when, <laughs> it really crushed you, uh, do you remember when so many more things came in glass? You know, Coke bottles, we used to get them in like the big, I don't know if it was a liter, but it was glass. I remember because I dropped one on my toe when I was a yes. small child and uh, it hurt. <laughs> and now they're plastic. So we used to yep. put a lot more things in glass in recent memory because I'm not old. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to keep saying Speaking that. Speaking of old, yeah. <laughs> yeah. my my siblings and I, mm -hmm. the four siblings are, who are all older than I am, even older than I am, 
uh, I ask questions from time to time. We ask questions. What do you remember about this? And I'm saying, what do you guys, I just wrote a, an email the other day after I was working on this story. What do you remember about the old Pepsi plant in Chamberlain? Oh. Which was a bottling plant at the north yeah. end of town, not right up from the river. And and we would go out there on Cub Scout trips and watch the you know, bottles that we picked up in the neighborhood and got a penny or two cents, you know, whatever it was at the time. And, you know, presuming some of those bottles we turned in were now going through the plant and coming out, rebottled and reused. And my understanding is that's still done, to mm. quite a bit of it, with, with most of the glass in Europe in a lot of those places. There's still a lot of glass recycling there. And I don't know if there are any recycling, bottle recycling plants for glass left, but yeah. uh, glass was a big thing. And also, talking about America, I don't know if you remember it, but it was eight ounce uh, glass bottles of Coke. Yeah. Boy, we thought eight ounces of Coke was pretty. A good. lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was a nice sp- little, nice little refreshment. <laughs> exactly. And now, of course, we got sixty-four ounces. Oh gosh. For twelve cents. Mm. Okay, so you went to, to see everything unfold, and let's address some of these questions to Mary's question. Like, throw it in and let them sort it out, when in doubt. Not that she's being flippant about this, but, you know, no. when in doubt, she would probably put it in. Who is making the decision to um, sort through those things then if, if you're wrong and you throw in your lawn chair, which apparently is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe that? You can't recycle a lawn chair, people. You put yeah. a lawn chair in your recycling bin <laughs> you put, and hoses and, you know, okay. and yeah, this, no. I love this, vacuum cleaners. Oh. Uh, for some reasons, uh, mm. they, they had some vacuum cleaners they get in there. And do, do you want me to talk about the worst of the worst that they get in the recycling oh, sure. bins? sure. Dirty diapers. Oh, well. Dirty diapers. I don't Seriously? think you can recycle that. <laughs> and so... These poor people that do the, mm. the, the first line of defense against this trash in the mm-hmm. recycling line is mm. the, the first pod, the first station. Uh, well-gloved, uh, hard-hatted uh, workers pick out the stuff that gets by the initial on the tipping floor. The guy in the front end loader kind of pushes the, 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 you know, the huge piles of hose to the side or the vacuum cleaner to the side and dumps into this uh, starting the conveyor belt process. Mm -hmm. And these guys pick out the bags and trash and other things as they go by and dump them into a, you know, a bin for trash that goes out to the landfill. And then, so they get, they do the first hit and boy, they're good at it. I was watching them. (laughs) This stuff's coming at them and their hands are going all the time and they're dropping stuff out that isn't supposed to be in the recycling line. And, uh, you know, then from there it goes on through the process. It's a really interesting process. Yeah, it has to be empty. You have to empty these. How empty is empty? Like if there's a little laundry detergent, that's the one I always figure. I'm like, if I gotten all the liquid laundry detergent out of yeah. the yeah. tub um, before I throw it in the recycling, how important is an empty container to this process? Well, empty is, you know, I don't know that they necessarily would tell you to have it dry empty, yeah. but... You know, it'd be nice if you could turn it over and really nothing came out uh, yeah. to speak of. That's just thrifty. And that's yeah. more important than the labels. And and while they would love to have you sort it, uh, they're, they're okay with just putting the plastic in there, uh, as Mary does, and they'll take it out. Because the next station along the way, uh, if you know, they, they pick out the, the good recyclables. Mm-hmm. Um, these guys that pick out the bad stuff, it's all separated, and they're really good at what they do. And uh, and she says, uh, 
Rhea Hannon, who was the person that kind of set me up for this, don't worry so much about the caps, the lids, and the labels and stuff. Just make sure you get it emptied out. And I don't know about you, but I'm trying to go to cardboard uh, dish or clothes washing laundry detergent yeah, boxes. Look, yeah, I did one of those like where, the old days. Yeah, where you just, um, you know, it's a little pellet or whatever that you throw in and it just dissolves mm-hmm. and then the container mm-hmm. is reusable. And I tried cloth diapers for about a week and that is as oh, far man. as I could last. I could yeah. I could not hang with the cloth diaper thing. Of course, I, that was 20 years ago, so I don't know. I hear you. Um, but let's talk about this because we, and especially in a community like Rapid City or a Black Hills community, um, as more and more people move in and the population increases, that is an increase in garbage and it is an increase in challenges to figure out what to do with uh, waste products, even recyclable products. Are people looking at trying to figure out how to throw less away, how to use less, consume less, or is that just a pipe dream for hippies like us <laughs> are talking well. about? <laughs> about maybe not consuming everything in the world. Uh, you know, I hope so. I hope we're thinking about that. We really need to buy that. And is that the real, you know, do, and I'm pretty much, as I'm sure you probably are, away from buy, ever buying bottled water, even yeah. along the road. I try to, we try to take plenty of our own bottles with us. And there are all kinds of other containers that you could take. Mary is very stingy with a plastic bag. If I'm running to go fishing, I want to throw a throw a sandwich in a plastic bag. And then, you know, we clean the bags out if they didn't have really bad stuff in it and reuse them. And, and uh, we have a sustainability committee here that I haven't, I haven't followed closely. But since meeting Rhea Hannon during mm-hmm. this, uh, I'm going to start following it, and I'm going to get a better idea, I hope, on what we're doing here. And I know you guys have, in Sioux Falls had a big sustainability process that you went through. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some controversy there about language over yep. climate change and things. Yep. Um, but I think I hope every city has one. If they don't, they should have one, and we should all be talking about this. Somebody is going to listen to this and say, you know, I don't need to worry about that plastic bag because this is a a policy issue. This is not an issue that can be solved by Kevin and Lori not using plastic bags, right? It has to be solved by corporations and uh, like on a macro level. Um, Remember when the legislature passed the ban on the bans? Like they said, you can't, a city cannot ban a plastic bag. Yeah. What are your yeah. thoughts about a bigger policy issue of something as simple as how much plastic we use on a daily? Well, the, the first of all, the policy at our place is determined by, <laughs> by Mary. <laughs> <laughs> things like that. So, so it doesn't matter what the legislature thinks. Uh, and as you know, you and I, do we feel better? <laughs> do Mary and I feel better when we're doing this, when we're trying to do this? Imperfectly, we're human beings, we're Americans, we're used to you know, throwing stuff away, way too used to it. But but this is a state where, God bless the state, I love it, but it's kind of tough to make many gains in that area in the legislature, I think, and in government, because I think kind of what happened in Sioux Falls with just language about climate change got right. to be very controversial. And uh, I can guarantee it sure would be out here. And so yeah, the difference between smart economic policy to help a community versus, you know, something that somebody will interpret as wokeism or, you know, an infringement on business freedom is the case with the plastic bags. Yeah. That was the yeah. logic behind it. I don't remember it being, 
you know, an anti-woke conversation as much as it was a, hey, you can't restrict that for businesses that are coming to the state. Um, that could inhibit that. I'm not sure about that because everywhere else I go, there are plenty of restrictions. So I don't know. Yeah, and most businesses seem from other states seem to understand that and deal yeah. with that and know their consumers So, mm-hmm. and, and their staff. All right, well, that was delightful, Kevin, on a Thursday afternoon to just hang out and take a little extra time talking about recycling and uh, garbage. Yeah. So thank you. Hi, my pleasure. You can find Kevin Wooster's writing, as always, on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Tomorrow on In the Moment, we will talk tech as we seek to understand all the ways artificial intelligence is rapidly changing our lives. You can send your tech questions for our panelists to in the moment at sdpb.org. How is AI impacting you? Plus, new music from Fresh Tracks and Recovering from the Derecho. SDPB's Liz Jones has that story. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Check out our YouTube videos on SDPB's YouTube channel. And thank you for listening. <laughs>